Well, this morning we're wrapping up the series of messages on homosexuality, a biblical response to our changing culture. And all of us are very aware since the Supreme Court's recent decision legalizing gay marriage that our nation is divided on this issue. This issue. But we also know that with every passing year, more and more people are viewing homosexual behavior as acceptable, as not sinful. In fact, recent uh, research by Lifeway, would you look at this on the screen, uh, illustrates that very candidly. Between 2011 and 2014, the percentage of Americans who believe homosexual behavior is a sin has changed from 44% all the way down now to 30%, 17% being, being uncertain. And so what we're trying to do is understand what does the Bible teach about this issue, but also look at the perspective of those who don't agree with the Bible's teaching on homosexual behavior. And, and there's no way in this sermon series, I planned it to be three weeks. It's ended up being four weeks. Today we wrap it up. There's no way in four Sundays I can address all the issues, answer all the questions people have. So I want to encourage you this coming week to visit my blog at our church website. I'm going to uh, answer some more questions that I just don't have time to work into these sermons. And, and so I encourage you to go there and check it out, get some more answers. And as I've said every week, if you miss one sermon, please go to the website and listen to the one you miss so you will have a complete understanding and lessen the possibility that you might even have an inaccurate understanding of what we're trying to say about this very, very important topic. Now, Today, we're going to focus on some of the reasons people give, some of the arguments they make for approving homosexual behavior and ignoring the traditional understanding of what the Bible says. And in the previous sermons, we've really addressed at length two of those arguments. One is that the Bible didn't know anything about sexual orientation, so therefore everything the Bible says about homosexual behavior is, is referring to heterosexuals who are engaged in homosexual behavior. Therefore, it's against their nature. So it really doesn't apply to people who are born gay. And we addressed that, showed the falsehood of that, that uh, argument in the last two sermons, so you can go back and listen to that if you want information on that one. And then another argument that people sometimes make against what the Bible says or the traditional understanding of the Bible on this particular issue is they'll say things like, you know, Christians, you don't follow all of the Old Testament law. You ignore a lot of it. So why should we follow the parts where it talks about homosexual behavior? And we addressed that the last two sermons. You can get all that on the website as well. But simply put, it's, it's the idea that there are three parts of the law in the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, the civil law related to being Jew within the relationship of the nation and God and all of that. And then there's the third type of law, the moral law, and the moral law still applies. And Jesus made that very clear and actually elevated the moral law. So that argument doesn't hold water either. Go back and listen to the other sermons and you'll, uh, you'll understand that in more depth if you've not heard them already. Today I want to focus on some additional ones. And uh, one of those I alluded to last week, and you hear people sometimes say something like, well, you know, the Bible really doesn't say much about homosexuality. There's only a handful of passages that even address it. Therefore, it must not be that big a concern, that big a deal to God, as much as Christians think it is. And here's what you need to understand. There are a limited number of verses in the Bible that talk about homosexuality. That's true. But there's more than one. And, and, and here's the thing. How many times the Bible says something doesn't matter. What the Bible says is what matters. I mean, does God have to say something a hundred times before it's true? Or is it true if God only says it one time? And God spoke about it in Scripture more than once. So how many times it's mentioned is not the real issue. What it says is what matters. Now, the Bible talks about other sins a whole lot more. It talks about murder, lying, stealing, cheating, pride, arrogance, etc. Although, you know, any, you know, drinking, any getting drunk, any list of sins the Bible talks about more. Why? Because more people struggle with those sins. I mean, the Bible talks about the issues that are relevant to the majority of people. And the truth is, most people never struggle with homosexual temptation. Now, if you watch television and pay attention to the culture, you would think a large percentage of the population is gay. Well, let's look at some, some, uh, some facts, okay? The CDC, 
And for those of you who don't know what the CDC is, that's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's an agency of our federal, of our United States government based in Atlanta, the leading health organization in the country. And the CDC, in their 2013 study, discovered that 1.6% of the American population struggles with gay and lesbian um, temptation or are, or consider themselves gay and lesbian. Another just less than 1%, 0.7% consider themselves bisexual. Now, the other research there, you see the Williams Institute, that's a think tank at the University of UCLA Law School. It's a very liberal, pro-gay organization. And what they did was a synthesis, if you will, of studies, of research in America, Canada, and Europe in recent years. And the synthesis from all of those nations identified that 1.7 of the population in America, in Canada, and in Europe are gay or lesbian. So very similar to what the CDC said. So, yes, that's a lot of people, but it's a small percent of the overall population. And one of the reasons the Bible doesn't say more than it does about the issue is because, one, God only has to say something one time. He said it more than once about this issue, but he only has to say it one. And then secondly, the Bible talks a lot more about the things that most of us in this room struggle with. Well, that just makes sense. That's logical. So the argument that, hey, it doesn't matter because there's only so many verses doesn't hold water. Now, here's another argument you'll sometimes hear. You'll hear people say things like, Jesus was completely silent on the subject of homosexuality. Did not say anything about it. Therefore, he must be okay with it. And it is true, Jesus did not say anything about homosexuality. But Jesus did not say anything about incest either. Jesus did not say anything about rape either. Does that mean that those behaviors are okay? See, in logic and debate, an argument from silence is the weakest argument you can possibly make. There's a reason Jesus didn't say anything about it. He didn't need to. There was no, listen, there was no debate, no controversy within Judaism when Jesus was teaching. There's, there's debate within Judaism today, but in the history of the Jewish nation and within the Jewish religion up until the time of Christ and for centuries thereafter, there was no debate about it. They, they all agreed with the Old Testament teaching that homosexual behavior was outside the boundaries that God had designed for human sexuality. And remember from the, from the very first sermon, God's design for human sexuality, God created sex, it's a beautiful thing, it's to be enjoyed, it's for procreation, and it's to be experienced within the, within the boundaries of a heterosexual relationship and marriage only. So any sex outside of that boundary, i.e. pornography, adultery, premarital sex, Jesus even added lust for someone who's not your, your wife and homosexuality. They're all outside that. That's why they're sinful. And so there was agreement within Judaism about that. No debate about it. So therefore Jesus did not have to say anything. And if Jesus had thought their understanding was the Old Testament was wrong, he probably would have said something because Jesus was never afraid to confront them when they were wrong about something. And that's one instance in which his silence would seem to indicate that he agreed with their understanding of the Old Testament teaching. Now, here's another one. You'll hear people sometimes talk about love. Love trumps everything. They'll say, Jesus taught us to love people. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, love God with all your heart, love everybody else the same like you love yourself. Love. Jesus was all about love and not about rules. And when Christians say that the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is contrary to God's design, when Christians say that homosexual behavior is sinful, they're not being loving. They're not being kind. And in fact, you create pain and suffering among people who are gay. And, and, and you make life hard for them because you say the Bible says it's a sin. And so you're not being kind. You're not being loving. In fact, you're actually being mean. And when you tell someone that they're wrong for doing what feels natural to them, that's really mean. That's not loving. That's not kind. And you may not mean to, but your words actually give cover to people who want to abuse gays, whether it's verbally or physically. Now, let's be clear on a couple of things. Any abuse of another person, no matter who they are, what their situation any abuse of another person is wrong. Contrary to biblical teaching is sin. Whether it's, whether it's uh, 
someone struggling with alcoholism, whether it's someone struggling with homosexuality, whatever it is, any abuse of another, of another person is wrong. Let's just be clear about that. But it does not mean that the only way I can love someone is to agree with them. I love a lot of people I don't agree with. And if the only way I can love someone is to agree with their behavior and affirm their behavior, that really, when you think about it, doesn't make any sense. Listen, love is not gauged by what we believe about the aspect, a certain aspect of someone's life. Love is gauged by how you, how you treat another human being. Let me illustrate that for you. Some years ago, just a few years ago, Russell Moore um, was the teaching pastor at a large Baptist church. And one Sunday before service, an 11-year-old boy in his church came up to him before the service to introduce him to his friend Jared that was on his soccer team. And it was the first time Jared had ever been to church in his life. And so Russell, the pastor, is talking to Jared. And during the conversation, Jared mentions that his dad had recently left. And he asked Russell, the preacher, if he would pray for his family and for his parents to get back together. And so Russell prayed for them. And afterward, he watched as Jared walked up the aisle to his seat in the pew there in the, in the sanctuary. And as Russell was walking up the aisle, and remember, this is an 11-year-old boy, never been to church in his life, first time in church, okay? And he's wearing a shirt that celebrated the recent inauguration of President Obama who was not very popular in that predominantly white, blue-collar, middle-class church. And so, now get the picture. Jared, first time ever in church, wearing that shirt, walking to his seat, and a middle-aged man walks by him going the other direction and huffs, we need to get you a better shirt. Now, that's mean. Doesn't matter what you think about President Obama's policies. That's mean. That's not kind. That's not loving. Especially to a kid who had never been to church before that day. Abuse of any person, including homosexuals, is a sin. It's wrong. But I don't have to agree with someone to love them and be kind to them. It is not means simply to teach God's Word, even if it's not popular, so long as I do it with the right spirit and right heart. I want, you to, I want you to notice something the Bible says in the book of 2 Timothy. Look at that verse on the screen there. And, and by the way, the first three sermons, you know, we spent 45 minutes teaching from particular passages, very Bible-centered. This sermon is going to be a little bit different, okay? Look at this Bible verse. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but, he, but be kind to all, able to teach. So teach the truth of God's Word, but do it with patience. Be patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those. Correcting means that if I disagree with someone, I explain why. If I believe something about the Bible that someone else doesn't believe, I explain why. But he says doing it with gentleness. Correcting with gentleness, those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. You see, if... if because the only way I can love someone is to agree with everyone, then I'm never going to teach them the truth. And in the long run, I'm not doing them any good because they'll never come to repentance and know God. But teaching the truth is not the only thing that matters. Believing the truth is not the only thing that matters. How you teach it matters. And how you treat people who don't agree with God's Word matters just as much so teach it he says the right way with gentleness so love yeah we're supposed to love jesus said love your neighbor as yourself love your enemies yes but that doesn't mean we don't teach truth it doesn't mean we have to agree that that's the only way we can love that's not even logical but how we go about it does matter now here's something else you'll sometimes hear people say as, as a reason for the church welcoming homosexuals into the church in full membership and leadership and that there's nothing wrong with homosexual sex, etc., they'll say something like this. You know, when you look at the Bible, Jesus and the early church reached out to and included 
groups who were oppressed, groups who were ostracized, groups who were marginalized. You'll hear people say, you know, Jesus was a, Jesus was a radical. Jesus was a social rebel. Jesus cared about the poor and he cared about the oppressed and he cared about social outcast. And you'll even hear some of them quote Jesus' words in Luke 4.18 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is, he, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed. See, Jesus said that's what he was all about, was welcoming everybody who's ostracized, welcoming everybody who was oppressed. And then the argument goes, no group in America is more oppressed than homosexuals. And Jesus would welcome them and wouldn't expect any change in their behavior. But they ignore one part of what Jesus said in that verse. They ignore the part where Jesus said that he was also here to preach the gospel to the poor and the outcast and the oppressed. And the gospel is the good news of salvation. Now listen, the gospel is the good news of salvation from sin and its consequences. When Jesus was born, the angel said he's the Savior and he's come to save people from their sins. The gospel is the good news that I can be forgiven and be transformed. And, and, and I receive the gospel by repenting of my sins and receiving Christ. And, and, it's, and repentance is I'm going this direction in life for whatever reason, but I'm going this direction. And I'm a sinner, and I hear the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and transformation in Christ, and I choose to turn from my sin and turn to God by repenting of my sin and placing my faith in Christ. And when that happens, I receive freedom. When that happens, I become part of the family. That's the gospel. And Jesus said, yeah, I free people. I free people by sharing with them the gospel that life doesn't have to be the way it is. The gospel is the good news of salvation from sin and its consequences. You'll also hear some people say something like this. They'll say, you know, the early church, was made up mostly of Jewish converts. And that's true. The very first church in Jerusalem was primarily Jews who had become followers of Christ. So they were Jewish converts to Christianity. <clears throat> and most Jews at that time had prejudice against Gentiles. That's also true. And in the book of Acts, we see the struggle of the early church which was predominantly Jewish converts, overcoming its prejudice toward Gentiles, and eventually they overcame it and fully welcomed them into membership and leadership, etc. And so therefore today, we should do the same thing with the gay community. Ignoring the fact that yes, those early Christians who were Jewish converts did have to overcome their prejudice against Gentiles, but they were welcomed into the church not just because of that. They were welcomed into the church because these Gentiles believed the gospel, repented of their sin, and placed their faith in Christ. And let's be really clear. The church today and individual Christians in the church today do need to get rid of any prejudice we have. And, and can we be honest? Every person in this room has some degree, it varies person to person, but we all have some degree of prejudice against some group. It can be sexual, it can be racial, it can be economic, it can be athletic, academic, it can be, we've all got, we're all, we all have some stuff in us toward other groups and other people, to some degree. There's not a perfect person in this room that has none of that in us. And we need to struggle as followers of Christ, allowing Him to help us weed that stuff out. And the church does so that we can welcome people into the church. And we need to be willing to welcome anyone into the church, whatever their background, who turns from their sin and places their faith in Christ, who believes the gospel. But if we deny the gospel, then we cease to be a New Testament church and we're just a religious organization. And we're a New Testament church who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, love people and welcome people and welcome into the church family people who become followers of Christ by turning from their sin and begin following Christ. Now, 
here's the next one. This is one y'all been waiting for since I started this sermon series a month ago. Here's the reason people give for, hey, it's okay. We don't follow the Bible's teaching on this. Here's the reason. I was born gay. I didn't choose it. And God made me this way. And in our culture, those statements are accepted as fact. Are they not? Is that not true? I mean, it's pretty much doctrine in American culture that those statements are fact. There used to be a debate between, you know, what was called nurture and nature. Are people homosexual because of nature? They're born that way. Or is it nurture the way they're raised, childhood experiences, etc.? And so today, you'll hear the, pro, the pro-gay crowd say it's all nature, it's all biological, it's all genetic. You'll hear the anti-gay crowd say it's, 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 it's all nurture, it's all environment, childhood experiences, it's all choice. And these two groups just shout at each other. They shout over each other all the time, right? The truth is, that's how much of our culture is. I mean, you can watch Fox News or CNN. Same thing, okay? Whether, whatever the moral issue, whatever the political issue, whatever the philosophical issue, whatever any issue is, it's this group shouting at that group and that group shouting at that group and nobody's talking. And every group exaggerates and uses hyperbola. And each group distorts the other group and what they say. Is that not true? Can we be honest and acknowledge that? Or are we so partisan on everything we can't be honest about that? Can we be honest? All right, now that we're being honest. What does science, and hold this slide, what does science tell us about this issue? And, I, and I'm going to tell you before I show you, the science is not going to make either extreme group happy. Because the science does not completely agree with either extreme. Back in the several decades ago, it was the American Psychological Association that removed homosexuality from the list of mental illness. This is a very liberal pro-gay organization. If you go home today and go to their website, the American Psychological Association, okay? If you go to their website right now, today, you will find this next statement. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that individual that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Now, again, remember what I said. Neither extreme is going to be totally happy with what you're going to see in science today. No consensus about what causes sexual orientation of any kind. All right, do we have the next slide? Let's look at that. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. That's on their website today. Liberal, pro-gay. Many think that nature and nurture both play a complex role. Here's the way science describes it today. Not everyone becomes homosexual the same way. There are various factors, biological and nature, biological and nurture, childhood experiences that interact. And they interact differently with each person. They say it's something like a, a map or a GPS. You're going from here to somewhere else. I'm, I won't go from this side of Rock Hill to the other side of Rock Hill. I won't go from, from Rock Hill to another city. There's several routes to get there. Some are more confusing than others, but there's different ways to get there. Not everybody arrives where they do sexually the same way. And what the science seems to indicate is that nurture is a huge role. So anyone who says nurture doesn't play a part, science disagrees with that today. Anyone who says experiences when you're young plays no role in it, science doesn't agree with that today. It's also true that anyone who says there's no biology, no biological influences with any of the homosexuals, science doesn't support that either. There's an interplay of these things. Now I'm going to walk you through how some of this works in just a moment, so stay with me, okay? 
I want to talk just a moment about some of the studies you may have heard about, some of the statements you hear people throw around. You'll hear people from some studies, in their, one study in particular in the, in the early 90s, he did autopsies on the brains of people who had died of AIDS. He was a gay activist. And, um, and he came out with this thing in the early 90s that the media picked up. Now it's fact in popular culture that the hypothalamus, that part of the brain of people who are homosexual, is smaller than it is in heterosexuals. Have you ever heard anything like that? That part of the brain is different. Well, scientists today have found many, many faults with that study, and it's not considered authoritative at all, and no research since has been able to duplicate his findings. In fact, when you look at his own research, his own autopsies, his reports, the hypothalamus was not always smaller in all homosexuals. In some homosexuals, it was actually larger, and in some homosexuals and in some heterosexuals, it was actually smaller. So his own findings were inconsistent. And so there's, there's really nothing to that study. What you hear more recently, uh, you'll hear a lot about twin studies. So they'll look at families, at, at boys in particular, at, at twins, identical twins who share practically the same genetic markers and so on, identical twins, and uh, fraternal twins. And then they'll look at families just normal brothers and brothers that you know and, and adopted boys and so on and, and and here's the thinking that if i if if in a family with identical twins one of those identical twins is gay and a higher percentage of the other identical twin is gay when compared to other sets of brothers then that would indicate that it's genetic and so there was one study by you know done years ago with with not following the principles of scientific research that is followed today that tended to say hey it's, it's proven it's genetic because a high percentage of identical twins are gay. Here's the more recent research on this issue. Um, one, one research recently looked at 27 sets of identical twins where one was homosexual. Of those 20 sets of 27 identical twins where one was gay, the other brother was gay in three cases. That's 11%. The most recent and largest study of identical twins looked at, 20, at, at 71 sets of identical twins. 71 sets of identical twins where one brother was gay. Among those 71 sets of identical twins, seven times or 9.8% the other one was gay. So basically about 10% of identical twins where one was gay was the other one gay which really weakens the argument that it's predominantly or only or exclusively biological. That, yes, their research, you know, because identical twins don't all share the same disease 100%. But there are many physical conditions they share at a very high percentage. may not be 100, but it's a very high percentage. And the fact that it's only about 10% would indicate that, yes, there may be some biology to this, but there's also other issues at play. And so to say that it's strictly genetic, strictly biological, is contrary to the scientific evidence of even the pro-gay community today. But yet in our culture, it's accepted as fact. It's a combination of these factors. And so I go back to what the American Psychological Association said, that there's no consensus among scientists to the exact reasons but now let's lay that aside for just a moment okay let's grant that biology does play a part it's not the only thing and it may not even be the determining thing but it is but let's just grant for a moment that biology genetics plays a part how do we as christians who believe the word of god deal with that from a biblical perspective if biology is a factor, how do we deal with that from a Christian biblical perspective? Here's how. It's all a part of our sinful nature as human beings. It all goes back to the very beginning, the creation of the universe. You remember the very first sermon we talked not only about God's design for sexual relations in Genesis 1 and 2, we also talked about, we began with the idea that God is the creator of the universe and therefore the ultimate authority, and that the essence of sin, 
The essence of every sin is a rebellion against God's authority in some way. And we said, when you look in Genesis, as God created the physical universe, okay, the stars, the sun, plant life, animal life, God looked, and what did he say? It's good. And then at the end of the creative process, when God created humanity, he said it's very good. Then the first people resisted God's authority, God's truth, and sinned. And all of a sudden, everything that God had said was very good was not quite as good. And they were banished from the garden, and the ground was cursed, thorns and thistles, and humanity was cursed with pain and suffering and death. And the truth is, the biblical teaching, the biblical teaching is that the entire created universe suffers today because of sin. We don't live in a perfect universe. You don't have a perfect body. In fact, the Bible teaches that from the moment you are conceived, your body is already imperfect. Well, science agrees with that. For instance, there was nothing I did as a child that caused my vision to get weaker as I got older, causing me to need glasses. There are people in this room, I'm not trying to be you know, fatalistic or morbid, but listen to me. There are people in this room today who will die from cancer, and that was true from the day you were conceived because of your genetic markers, and there's not a thing you could do to stop it. Right? Right? We're all born imperfect. And, and, and the truth is that's all because of our sin nature. Now let me show you some of this biblically if I can, okay? Show it to you biblically how our sinful nature shows up. Psalm 51 verse 5. Look at this Bible verse. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean she was involved in a sinful sexual activity when she got pregnant. It means that from the time you're born, from the time you can, you're conceived, your body has a sinful nature. It's the product of the fall and the curse. And your body's not perfect. It's the effect of sin. Look at the next verse in Ephesians. We too, all of us who are followers of Christ, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by our very nature, our sinful nature, children, <clears throat> children of wrath, even as as the rest all of us have this sinful nature all of us have this struggle and um, the truth is all of us trace our ancestry back to the very first man and woman and we've all had a sinful nature ever since and we struggle with that when you become a christian <clears throat> you receive the holy spirit and have this spiritual nature, and they do battle with one another. You're living in this life with both that old nature and the new nature, and they fight one another. And one of the things we look forward to as followers of Christ is the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, when we get rid of this old body, and all we have is the new body, the resurrected body, the glorified body with only that spiritual nature, and this battle is over on the inside of us. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans chapter 7 he said i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willingness present in me all this I, I want to do what's right but the doing of good is not for the good that i want i do not do but i practice the very evil that i do not want how many times have you said i really want to do this but for whatever reason it was harder for you to do it than you thought and you just you just you just never won you you kept getting defeated how many of you have ever struggled with something? You say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But you did it anyway. We have this sinful nature. And it fights us all the time. Now look at what Paul says in the, in, in the book of Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I could take an hour and just talk about that chapter. He's talking about the second coming of Christ when we get that new body in. And, uh, and, and we're delivered from this battle. And he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. He uses the birthing experience as an analogy for human experience. And what he says is this, that the whole universe, all of creation, groans with the pains of childbirth like a mother in labor. Every time, every time there's a hurricane, every time there's a flood, every time there's a tornado, 
Every time there's a cave-in, every time there's an earthquake, nature is groaning. Because when mankind became sinful, God chose to not allow an imperfect humanity to live in a perfect world. And so he cursed the ground. He cursed the universe. And gave us an environment that matches our nature. And so nature groans. And he tells us in that same chapter that nature is looking forward to the day when we as the sons of God are redeemed. When Jesus comes back and we get rid of this old body and have that new body in heaven because in that day all of the universe is going to be restored to glory and to perfection. But until then, it groans. But not only does nature groan, but he says, not only this, <clears throat> but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, Holy Spirit within us, the promise of what's to come, but we don't have it all yet because the second coming hasn't happened yet. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption Redemption as the sons of God, the redemption of our body. That's the cancer. That's the heart disease. There are people in this room who exercise, who eat healthy, but because of family history, the nature of their body, they battle cholesterol problems, right? And then there are others in this room, you're, you don't exercise and you're fat. But your cholesterol might be better than that skinny person. I'm just saying. Because sin shows up in our body, this sinful, sinful nature, it shows up in our bodies in different ways. We know that some children are born with a propensity toward alcoholism. We know that children are born, a psychopath is born a psychopath. And sin's not fair. Whoever said life is fair? Sin's not fair. And some of us are born with an easier life than others. Can, can we be honest and admit the fact that some people are born and, 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 and because of the way their body is, they have harder struggles than others of us? Can we acknowledge that? And it's not simply based on where they're born and what family. Some people, you know, some kids are born with terrible physical problems. Sin's not fair. Life's not fair. And the way it shows up in our body is not fair. And can we at least be compassionate enough to acknowledge that if someone has something in them biologically that gives them a greater sense of same-sex attraction, that that's a harder battle to fight than those of us who've never dealt with that. Can we at least have a little compassion and acknowledge that? doesn't mean we have to agree with the behavior. But we have to acknowledge that life's not fair, sin's not fair, and it shows up in a lot of different ways in people's bodies and in their lives. So here's the really important question for us as Christians. How do we respond to all this? How do we respond to all this? Let me give you some, some, some suggestions real quick as I wrap this up. Number one, we have to decide what kind of church we're going to be. We have to decide what kind of Christian we're going to be. You know, you've got the two extremes. The, the, we hate you crowd that screams and carries banners and shows no mercy and no compassion and no love. And we have the, oh, we, we fully affirm you crowd that says, come on into the church. No repentance is needed. We approve of your sexual lifestyle no matter what. And the truth is that neither extreme is being loving. Neither extreme is really helping anyone. Part of our dilemma is that there are some people who do not believe we can be compassionate without affirming and agreeing with someone, which isn't true. And we just have to accept that on the part of some people. But look at what the Bible says in the book of 1 Peter. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ. Give Christ that special place in your heart as Lord always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you 
to give an account for the hope that is in you. Always being willing to explain to someone what the Bible teaches, your relationship with Christ and what repentance and the gospel is all about. But do it how? With gentleness. See, right theology matters. Right belief matters. But how you communicate it to people matters just as much. So how do we respond? We choose that we're going to be the kind of church, we choose that we're going to be the kind of Christians who stand on God's Word. We don't compromise that. We don't run from it. We don't deny it. But in our relationships with people, we show gentleness in our teaching and correction, gentleness and kindness. Is that easy all the time? No. But hear me, brothers. <clears throat> hear me, sisters. There's some of us in this room who have way too much anger to do what Jesus has called us to do, even if we have the right theology. And that's why in the very first sermon I said, this is not a sermon series about amens and anger. It's about learning how to follow Christ in this changing culture. Second suggestion. Decide what the authority for truth is in your life. Is the authority for truth in your life, is it sentiment or is it God's word? Is truth subjective or objective? Is it anything you want it to be or what God says it is? You see, sentiment is I feel and allowing just my feelings to determine what is truth. We know from recent research that people who have a gay relative or a gay friend are more approving of a gay gay uh, behavior than people who don't have a, a homosexual relative or homosexual friend. Well, that makes sense because you walk in someone else's shoes, you get to know them, you feel for them, you have empathy. And we're supposed to have compassion. We're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to be kind. But as followers of Christ, we cannot determine what is true based on emotional sentiment. Because if that's the case, nothing is true. Whatever you want to be true is true. The authority for truth is what God says. And so you, you've got to decide what's going to be the authority for truth in your life. Yes, what kind of Christian are you going to be? Are you going to be a compassionate one, teaching the truth with compassion? But are you going to teach truth, or are you just going to live on sentiment and emotion, and that's it? Is that your only authority in life? And then here's the third one. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The Bible says it's the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Because if you and I become ashamed of the gospel and deny the gospel, we don't help anyone come to know Jesus Christ. We actually do them great harm. So never be ashamed of the gospel. Rosaria. Rosaria Champagne. These are our own words. She was a leftist, lesbian, tenured professor at Syracuse University in women's studies. Her view of the world and life was shaped by Marx, Darwin, and Freud. She was an anti-religious, anti-Christian leader of the gay and lesbian and bisexual group on campus. In 1997, <clears throat> Rosaria wrote an article that was published criticizing the Christian Promise Keepers movement. And she got a lot of response. She got hate mail. She got fan mail. But there was one letter that got her attention. It was from a local pastor in Syracuse. He didn't attack her. He didn't criticize her. He didn't try to defend Scripture. He just very positively asked her some questions that caused her to have to think about what she had been saying. He just asked questions in the right way. And in his letter, he invited her to have dinner with him and his wife. And so she met them for dinner. 
to her surprise, they became friends. Started eating together. In each other's homes, he met her lesbian lover and gay and lesbian friends. They had all kinds of conversations, very candid conversations. Candid conversations about politics, (laughs) religion, sexuality, almost everything. And he didn't hide who he was and what the Bible said, but he did it in the right way. He, she, she said he, he, he talked and lived holy in front of her. And when they would eat dinner, he would, he would pray. And she said he prayed like she never heard anybody pray before. It was very authentic. And she said even sometimes he would confess his own sins during those prayers. And then she said something. Now, listen, some of you are going to react negatively to this, okay? But get beyond that because there's a lesson for us. She said the fact that he did not invite her to church told her she could be friends with him because he wasn't just after her. Now, I'm not saying don't ever invite anybody to church. Just I would never say that. We need to invite people to church. But in that circumstance, it would have shut the relationship down. But because of that relationship, you know what happened? In time, she started reading the Bible out of curiosity. And she describes her struggle. She was fighting God as God began speaking to her because the truth is once you get in God's Word, He starts talking to you. And so she was having this battle going on inside of her, and her gay and lesbian friends noticed it and warned her, told her to quit reading the Bible. But she kept reading it. In fact, In one year's time, she read it several times in various translations. And then, now listen, she said one Sunday morning, after spending the night in bed with her lesbian lover, she she didn't know why, she just got up and she decided, today I'm going to his church. And she went to his church. And her own words, her own words, she said she felt totally out of place with her butch haircut, her own words. But she kept going back. And the day came when Rosaria gave her heart to Jesus and was saved and became a new person. That was 1999. Do you know where Rosaria is today? She lives up in North Carolina. She's a mother, she's married to a pastor and has a ministry. How about that? You don't hear those kind of stories in the media, do you? Because the media doesn't want you to. So what's God saying to you? We're going to stand on the truth of God's Word. We don't base truth on sentiment. We base it on Scripture. But how we live it out in relationships is just as important. You see, you can go to hell with good theology if you treat people wrong. (laughs) So stand on the truth of God's Word. And love people. And if some people won't let you love them unless you deny the Bible and agree with them, you can't control that. That's their choice. And it may break your heart, 
But just like we saw last Sunday, God gave them over. God let them go. God gave us free will. Sometimes people will break your heart. And there's nothing you can do about it. So stand on Scripture and do it with love. That's what it all comes down to. Stand on Scripture and just don't be mean about it. Let's stand. You know, it's, it's been interesting this month as we've talked about this subject. In some ways, it's been affirming for a lot of you to, hey, I've got reasons. You know, I understand God's Word better, and it does make sense. But what's been interesting to me also is how many people have made comments about, you know, it's also, God's also changed my thinking about people in terms of how I talk about them and how I treat them. And the truth is it's hard to love somebody if you're never present in their life. It's easy just to say words. The challenge is to be compassionate and loving when you're present in somebody's life that's, you know, different. But like I said last Sunday, how do you deal with relatives who are alcoholics? How do you deal with relatives who have affairs and bring pain to the home? You love them. You don't affirm the choices, but you love them. And that's what we do in life. Sometimes we're going to fail. And when we do, we need to be honest about that and confess it. And uh, allow God to cleanse us and grow us. So what is God asking you to do? How is God asking you to grow? How is God asking you to to become more like Christ? For some of you, it's, it's standing on the truth of God's Word because you've been denying it, compromising it for sentiment's sake. And you just need to come back around to standing on the authority of what Scripture teaches. For some of it, you've got more anger in you than you do compassion, and you need to let God get rid of that. Because you can't help anybody if all you're filled with is anger. So let's sing. We invite you to pray here at the altar.